0: The History Channel Original Podcast. History This Week, February 13th, 1861. I'm Sally Helm. The air is still today. The New York Times would later write that the flags over the Capitol building aren't flapping but are hanging loose against their staves. And the city of Washington, D.C. is waiting bracing itself. Because, for weeks, there have been threats that this day is going to get violent. The country has just come through a contentious election. The winner is Abraham Lincoln. He's a Republican. He's opposed to slavery and against its expansion. And pro-slavery voters, especially many Southern voters, think that Lincoln's election spells the end of their way of life. And they're not having it. Seven states have already seceded. Today is a very important day for this democracy in crisis. In the halls of Congress, Lincoln's victory will be affirmed when the electoral votes are officially counted. But on the morning of February 13th, anti-Lincoln rioters begin pouring into the streets. People are armed. Many have been drinking. They all collect in front of the Capitol building. Their goal? To stop the electoral count. Today, the Capitol attack of 1861. What happened when a mob of anti-Lincoln rioters tried to take over the US Capitol? How did American democracy handle the test?
1: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
0: About a week after the Capitol riot of January 6th, 2021, I called historian Ted Widmer. He wrote a book about a very specific slice of Abraham Lincoln's life— the 13-day train trip that Lincoln took to Washington, D.C., before his inauguration in 1861. It was during that time that a mob of anti-Lincoln rioters stormed the U.S. Capitol and tried to take it over. And after the Capitol riot of 2021, Widmer's research was starting to feel alarmingly relevant. He said, the whole thing has been surreal.
2: I'm not sure what century I'm living in half the time. I mean, I'm definitely in 2021, but I feel every time I pick up a newspaper, which I still actually do, I still buy a newspaper, that we're in some alternate universe in which we're hurtling toward events that really resembled the situation in the winter of 1860 to 61 when Lincoln's on his way to become the president, but there are incredible obstacles in front of him
0: obstacles on the order of an existential threat to the nation. A civil war is brewing. You can already see the signs.
2: In my research, I kept seeing signs earlier and earlier in 1859 in a Richmond newspaper. They were already writing that if the election went the wrong way, they were absolutely happy to secede and start a country of their own.
0: The thing driving people apart, of course, was the question of slavery. Voters in the North were generally anti-slavery, Southern voters were generally pro. Though, Widmer says, by 1860, the political question had actually gotten much narrower than people tend to remember now.
2: The argument has gotten more and more specific, and it has centered on whether the South has the right to expand slavery across the Mississippi River into what are still territories and not yet states. At
0: several points, the South had agreed not to expand slavery any further, but they kept breaking their promises. In the election of 1860, this becomes the key decisive issue. The threat of secession is in the air, so the stakes are extremely high.
2: The emotion level is just through the roof. Everyone knows the 1860 election will profoundly change the country.
0: The Democratic Party has been the dominant party in the nation for over 30 years. But in the lead up to the 1860 election, the Democratic Party splits into two factions. The Northern Democrats are against expanding slavery. The Southern Democrats are for it. They nominate two different candidates, Stephen Douglas in the North and John C. Breckinridge in the South. And this split leaves an opening for the Republican Party to take power in Washington. The Republicans are anti-slavery. Some are die-hard abolitionists, others are more moderate, meaning no expanding slavery in the territories. And it's not at all clear who the party's going to nominate. But the name Abraham Lincoln is nowhere near the top of the list.
2: At the end of 1859, a long list of 21 possible nominees for the Republican nomination was published and his name is not on it, so he's not even in the top 20.
0: Lincoln was, at that point, a bit of a nobody. He'd been born in Kentucky and then spent much of his childhood
2: in southern Indiana. Which is pretty southern, and he probably had an accent that we might even call kind of southern. His family moves to Illinois, and he's fascinated by politics.
0: He becomes a small-town lawyer, spends a bit of time in the Illinois state legislature, serves one term in the U.S. House of Representatives. He makes a slightly bigger name for himself in 1858— He's running for the U.S. Senate as a Republican against Democrat Stephen Douglas, the same person he'll run against in the 1860 election. And those 1858 Lincoln-Douglas debates will become famous. They raise Lincoln's profile. But in the end, Lincoln loses that Senate race. And two years later, he's a real underdog for the Republican nomination.
2: And he also looked funny. You know, tall and gangly, and his clothes never hung on his body very well. He didn't look well put together. That was bad for conventional politics. As it turned out, it was quite good for unconventional politics, because he would just stand out there in front of the people, and the people would go crazy. They liked the way he looked. He looked like a real American.
0: At the 1860 Republican Convention in Chicago, Lincoln's chief opponent is New York Senator William Seward. Seward has been vigorously anti-slavery for many years. Lincoln, on the other hand, is a relative newcomer, and he sticks to a more moderate line, that slavery shouldn't be expanded into new states and territories. And that more moderate position ends up carrying the day.
2: From the moment he gets the nomination in May of 1860, there's a torrent of abuse coming out of the South in respectable places, Jefferson Davis is a senator from Mississippi, and he begins to speak in a very threatening way about Lincoln's United States. And a lot of Southern newspapers have angry and even violent editorials. It's just not hard to find written down in letters and newspapers just how full of hate the Southern people were for Lincoln.
0: So lots of white people in the South hated Lincoln. But some African-Americans enslaved in the South knew what his election might mean for them.
2: The famous Black leader, Booker T. Washington, said he was only four years old. He was a slave on a plantation in Virginia. He remembered knowing the issues. They knew someone was coming who their masters really didn't want to be elected, and that was enough for them to want him to win. And I found some amazing stories that made me think of QAnon where masters would tell their slaves, who have no access to newspapers, a very bad man is coming in and he's going to try to eat all of you. He's a cannibal and he wants to eat all of you, but we will do our best to stop him.
0: When Election Day 1860 finally arrives, the country is on edge.
2: Everybody knew our country will change forever if Lincoln has won, and it turned out to be true.
0: The night of the election, November 6th, 1860.
2: James Garfield, a future president in Ohio, couldn't sleep, and he rode his horse many miles in the middle of the night to a local telegraph station to get the news, and that was happening throughout the country. Widmer
0: tells the story of a young Thomas Edison who's so desperate to hear the results of the election that he can't wait until the newspapers get to print.
2: And the fastest way he can get the news, he's so good at reading the electricity of the signals of the telegraph that he puts it on his tongue. And that's how he gets the news that Lincoln has won. Lincoln has won,
0: but just barely.
2: Lincoln wins with a very small percentage of the vote. 39.8 percent, which is tiny for a winner, the second smallest uh, winner ever received in our history. And when you think of how famous and important Lincoln is, it's shocking to think that he just squeaked in basically, but he he did. And, And then really his troubles were just beginning.
0: The attacks that Lincoln faced before the election ratchet up in newspapers, and in private conversations
2: all across the country. Sometimes they say he's very weak, he's the creature of his party managers, that all of these extreme abolitionists control him to the opposite extremes. He's a tyrant, he's he's a despot. He's coming in, he's gonna ruin our country. And they, they can't get their message straight, but it's always negative. And then in the fringes of all that is the promise that they will stop him violently from ever making it to Washington. In
0: Washington, D.C. itself, slavery is legal. And you start to see conflict spilling into the streets.
2: There are people causing fights or pushing each other off sidewalks or just sort of drunkenly yelling at each other on the streets of Washington.
0: And in the halls of power, there are more serious plots taking shape.
2: One surreal feeling that I had in my research was my dawning awareness that the Confederate States of America, which we think of as a kind of alien country, formed at Montgomery, Alabama in February of 1861, It's really being planned in Washington, D.C., inside the United States of America, in November and December of 1860.
0: At this point, Lincoln has won the election. But Southerners still control the Senate, the House, the Supreme Court, and, for a few weeks yet, the presidency.
2: James Buchanan had basically stopped being president. He had a kind of mental and maybe physical breakdown and he couldn't make a decision and he couldn't give a speech, he couldn't hold a meeting. He just would sit there and it was very odd.
0: This means that the powerful slave-owning interests in Washington can kind of get him to do whatever they want him to do. And so...
2: They're having lots of secret meetings in which they're planning their country to be and they're sending huge numbers of rifles from northern arsenals down into the South. The Secretary of War is a Southerner. And so it's like you can see treason happening inside the actual government of the United States in the weeks leading up to Lincoln's arrival.
0: On February 11th, 1861, Lincoln leaves Illinois by train, heading to Washington, D.C. for the inauguration. His trip will take almost two weeks. And... A lot can happen in two weeks.
2: There are rumors sweeping Washington that something really bad is about to happen.
0: Talk is swirling around one specific date — February 13th. That's the date when the House and Senate will convene to officially count the state electoral votes. Then, as now, it's supposed to be a boring, straightforward ceremony. But in the weeks leading up to the official electoral count, there's talk of a hostile takeover to prevent Lincoln from ascending to the presidency.
2: One possibility is that armed militias will come over from Virginia. A former governor, until very recently a governor of Virginia, is loudly calling for an invasion of the District of Columbia.
0: And there have been specific threats against the U.S. Capitol
2: building. Bombs being blown up inside the Capitol, maybe while Congress is meeting, or Southerners might just come in, overpower the guards, there aren't very many guards, and take over the building. And by doing that, they would have effectively taken over the government of the United States of America because there are very few buildings in the U.S. government. It's a small government. There's the White House, the Patent Office, Treasury Building, a couple little military buildings here and there, and the fortresses around the country. And then by far the biggest and most important building of the federal government is the U.S. Capitol.
0: That includes both Houses of Congress like it does today.
2: But also the Supreme Court and the Library of Congress and all the documents, the treaties, the laws, you know, everything that makes American history is inside that building. So small number of troops might have just taken over the Capitol and said, this is our house.
0: There are some guards at the U.S. Capitol, but the building is not very well protected. Luckily, someone powerful is hearing all these rumors of violence. General Winfield Scott. He's the commander of the U.S. Army, soon to retire. He's a war hero, a former presidential candidate, An old man enjoying the twilight of his life.
2: Scott lives in New York. He likes good restaurants. He's kind of old and overweight. He can't even get on his horse. And he's really near retirement. But he just smells treason.
0: Scott hears the same rumors that everyone else is hearing in the weeks leading up to February 13th. So he goes back to Washington.
2: And he just starts arming his men and putting them around the Capitol and also putting cannons out for people to see.
0: Scott himself is a Southerner. He's from Virginia. Given that, there's a good chance he didn't vote for Lincoln. But he's committed to making sure that Lincoln becomes president.
2: He is a patriot in the real sense of the word. He just decides nobody's going to disrupt this election. This election is sacred to our country. And Lincoln isn't even there yet. Winfield Scott doesn't know Abraham Lincoln, but he's just loyal to the country and to the sacred democratic rituals that are so important.
0: Scott was not messing around.
2: He warned that if anyone tried to interfere, he would lash them to the muzzle of a 12-pounder and fire them out the windows of the Capitol. And he added, I would manure the hills of Arlington with the fragments of his body, meaning anyone who tried to disrupt specifically the counting of the vote on February 13th.
0: But despite Scott's warnings, when the day arrives, a mob arrives with it. On the morning of February 13th, hundreds, maybe even thousands of people start streaming into Washington. Their aim? To take over the Capitol. The electoral votes will be counted in Congress on February 13th, 1861. And pro-slavery rioters are determined to disrupt the count. They spill into Washington, D.C. from all directions.
2: Many by train, but also horseback and other ways, walking. Their intent was to storm the Capitol and come into the House chamber and just cause mayhem. And... I'm not sure they had a plan more than that, but they were so unhappy with Lincoln's election that they refused to let it go through.
0: They're ready for a fight, and some are armed.
2: People describe them as looking like they were violent. Many were drinking, they were loud, they were swearing a lot. And they're going straight to the Capitol, which is, you know, an incredibly prominent building in Washington up on top of the hill. It's like an object of a pilgrimage, like they've shown up at a cathedral, and they want to get in.
0: But they meet an obstacle. The forces of Winfield Scott. The soldiers demand to see a special pass that you need to enter the building, which, of course, the rioters don't have. They're absolutely furious.
2: And they're swearing and spitting tobacco juice and getting drunker and angrier all around the Capitol and all sides, but… The soldiers are, are too powerful for them, and just placing his men at the right doorways at the right time was just barely strong enough to keep them from coming in.
0: The sounds of this crisis on the Capitol steps can be heard from inside the legislative chamber.
2: Sounds of anger, profanity, things being thrown at the building, hitting up against the walls. But then inside, it's pretty hot also.
0: There are pro-slavery audience members in the gallery, pro-slavery legislators who are ready to object. And the results of the election will be carried over to the chambers in two wooden boxes, just as they are today. The person responsible for bringing them over is none other than John C. Breckinridge, the vice president and the defeated pro-slavery presidential candidate.
2: So he's sitting there in his office with the confirmation that he has lost the election. And a lot of people at the time were worried that he had a pretty good opportunity to either misplace it or even in the short walk from the Senate to the House on the day of the counting to have someone knock him over and grab the boxes and run away with with them. So it was on the minds of everyone in Washington, and we are really Off the map of known politics.
0: But Breckinridge does his duty.
2: The two wooden boxes were brought from the Senate chamber into the House chamber. And the Northerners who were in the room looking at those two wooden boxes said, God, our democracy looks fragile at this moment.
0: The Speaker begins to count the votes.
2: You would have heard from the center of the House, someone saying, Massachusetts casts its electoral votes for, and the recording of those votes for, Abraham Lincoln. And then some applause from inside the room.
0: But also probably heckling from people in the gallery or from members on the floor. For example, during the count, a Virginia congressman makes a very disruptive speech.
2: He's loudly denouncing it, and he jumps up and down. He's so mad that he's stamping his feet, swearing loud, and finally he just storms out of the room, very rude, slams the door on his way out. And a reporter said he resembled the famous old actor Junius Booth, who was famous for his temper tantrum scenes in Richard III by Shakespeare. And Junius Booth happens to be the father of John Wilkes Booth.
0: Four years later, John Wilkes Booth will assassinate Abraham Lincoln. But on February 13th, in the halls of Congress, democracy prevails. Lincoln is confirmed as the 16th president of the United States. The men responsible for storming the Capitol, they're not arrested—
2: As far as I know, there was no punishment of any kind. They just walked around really angry for hours, and they stayed into the night and drank a lot, and then they mostly left the next day.
0: They didn't achieve their aim, but there's a feeling that things could have gone very differently.
2: One possible outcome was if they had succeeded in taking back the capital and the district, it might've become the capital of the country they were starting. And I read something somewhere that blew my mind that they might have called their country, instead of the Confederate States of America, the United States of America. They might've just taken it over. They, it would've been a pro-slavery country called the United States of America, with the capital as the place of government and the White House as the place the president lived in. Isn't that crazy? And it wasn't that far away from happening. Even though
0: that didn't happen, the violence is far from over. On his train trip to the Capitol, Lincoln evades not one, but three assassination attempts. And on March 4th, 1861, he's inaugurated, as sharpshooters line the Capitol roofs to protect him.
2: There was a very heavy police presence and fears that a crowd will be unruly And disruptive, and as he gave his inaugural address, I I found examples of minor disruptions that were happening. But he goes out onto that stage very publicly exposed and delivers his beautiful first inaugural address, one of the great Lincoln speeches, and has the deeply moving peroration at the end about we must be friends, not enemies. And the mystic chords of memory... Meaning the way we remember history will bring us back together when we are touched by the better angels of our nature. And it's a beautiful line. Even when we have minor disagreements, we can all love the same country.
0: Of course, just weeks after Lincoln delivers this speech, the country will splinter into civil war. Lincoln will lead the country through that war. Signed the Emancipation Proclamation, freeing enslaved people in the entire U.S., regardless of state or territory — a much more radical position than he ran on in 1860. And then, soon after the war ends in April of 1865, Lincoln will be assassinated. Just over a month before his death, he delivers his second inaugural address. This time, he's seen the horrors of the Civil War, and his message now is this, quote, "...with malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds." Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. This episode was produced by Julie Magruder. History This Week is also produced by McKamey Lynn, Ben Dickstein, and me, Sally Helm. Our editor and sound designer is Dan Rosato, and our researcher is Emma Fredericks. Our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next week.
1: Hold up.